what a blessing it is to hear the music of the praises of our living God. And this morning as we come, we are going to take our Bibles and we are going to be studying in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we are going through 1 Timothy and understanding exactly what the structure of the local church is to be. What the structure and the practice of the local church is to be. And if I were to ask a very basic question this morning, I imagine it would stir up some amount of controversy and discussion even within this church because there are many people from various and different backgrounds. And that simple question would be just this. Who's in charge of the church? Whose church is this? Who's in charge of the church? Some would say, well, the pastor's in charge of the church. Or the pastors are in charge of the church. Others would shake their head, as uh, we have on the stage left uh, this morning, and say, absolutely not. The pastors aren't in charge of the church. Who's in charge of the church? Indeed, we would be right to point out that nine out of ten ministers who go into ministry, gospel ministry in the Southern Baptist Convention today end their ministry before retirement or before their death because they are burned out. Because there is a professionalization of the church ministry where it says that the pastor is the professional Christian that is paid to do all the work of ministry within the context of the local church. In other words, they're just like squirrels running in the cage and they are never able to get anywhere or accomplish anything. Others of us would draw upon our American culture and we would say the congregation is in charge of the church. After all, we live in a democracy, therefore, our church must be a what? Democracy. If we don't like you or the details of your doctrine and practice, we're going to vote you out. A couple of weeks ago, we came face to face with this. Uh, uh, I was recanting or recanting, uh, wrong word, uh, recanting. I was discussing with our Sunday school teachers during our Sunday school training uh, of the woeful attendance on Sunday night when we devote ourselves to studying and understanding the Word of God just like we do on Sunday morning. And the fact that there was a, a, a wide uh, span of people who were absent on Sunday nights from Sunday mornings. Indeed, about, you know, we'll be uh, very blessed if we have one third of everybody who is here this morning, back this evening, to hear the Word of God clearly explained and expounded once again. Or tonight. To meet for a business meeting. We'll have even fewer. And the reality is. We. As we were talking about that. I I asked them the question. I said. What would happen. If I just started as a pastor. Not showing up on Sunday nights. You want to know what the wise reply was. You need to find another church. That's the American way isn't it. It's our way or the highway. Indeed, we need to understand uh, the American way is not necessarily the biblical way. And lest you need any other examples, just look at uh, the chaos of our culture and we can readily understand our pragmatism and our own mindset is not always in accordance with biblical truth and biblical order. In first in first Timothy chapter three, verses one through thirteen, Paul instructs Timothy and the church 
of the personal qualifications of those who would serve as overseers, elders, and deacons or servants of the local church. Before we look to these qualifications, I believe it is vitally important for us to set for ourselves the biblical model of church governance. And that institutes two primary offices that are described within the New Testament of those who would oversee the the function of gospel ministry in fulfilling the Great Commission Jesus Christ gave to us. There are two primary offices that are given to facilitate gospel ministry in overseeing the completion, the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the midst of our time and our day. And what are those two offices that are mentioned? Nominating committee? Constitution committee? Oh, no, no, uh, sorry. Elders and deacons. Those are the two offices. The reality is many churches, including ourselves, have taken traditional pragmatic and cultural practices in place of the biblical offices revealed in Holy Scripture. And in order to rightly understand the biblical model of church government, we first must answer from the Bible rightly that question that we ask Whose church is it? Who's in charge of the church? And ultimately, the answer is not the pastor. It is not the congregation. It is not the committees. The right answer, the biblical answer, is that Jesus Christ, our living Lord, is the head of the church. And it is under His authority, His Lordship, and His leadership that we unite together to worship in spirit and in truth. And so today we're going to sort out how the headship of Jesus Christ works itself out in the leadership of the local congregation. How the headship and the authority of Jesus Christ works itself out in the leadership of of the local congregation. Let us take for ourselves our copy of God's Word and let's stand in honor of the reading of this God's Holy Word. I'm going to read all the way through verse 7, but primarily we are going to just deal with verse 1 today. And there in our Bibles, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verse 1, the Holy Word of God says this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Father, we come today asking that your leadership would be exercised within this congregation. Father, that we would submit ourselves willfully uh, to your sovereignty. And Father, to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that we would understand these words. And as we rightly divide and understand these words, that they would apply into our lives. So that many of us, Father, as we are following under the submission of Jesus Christ, might seek to serve you. 
and to further your gospel through the context of the local church and through the mission work to the ends of the earth. Father, we ask now that you would lead us, guide us, and direct us as we study this, your holy word. And Father, we pray as always that your Holy Spirit would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in the scriptures, Christ exercises headship over his church through spiritually mature elders who edify, equip, and shepherd his flock to fulfill gospel ministry. In the scriptures, Christ exercises headship. He exercises leadership and authority through spiritually mature elders who edify, equip, and shepherd his flock to fulfill gospel ministry. Now, this is not just seen here in this passage. It is seen throughout the text of the New Testament. And so we're going to trace a couple ideas of that through the New Testament. The first First of all, we need to say and to see that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, we understand that from chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul says, I am an apostle of who? Of God the Father and, and by the commandment of God the Father and Jesus our Savior. So he's under the command, he's under the headship, under the leadership of God himself. And he is representing these uh, these commandments to the church on behalf of the God he serves. As we begin today, let's just, uh, as a congregation, let us confess together the correct answer to that crucial question uh, that we ask. Whose church is this? Let us confess together. It's Jesus Christ's church. It's not your church. It's not my church, it's not his church, it's not her church, it's not their church, it's not their, those over there. It is God's church under the headship and leadership of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus' beautiful bride bought with his own blood on the cross of Calvary. And as such, Jesus Christ is the one who is to have preeminence within his body, the bride of Christ. Now, Where do you get that from, Pastor? I don't see that. Well, trace with me these scriptures. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Don't turn there, uh, but go ahead and be turning to Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Here's what the Word of God says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who paid the price to buy the church? Did you? Did I? Did the deacons? Did the committees? Did the Sunday school teachers? No, 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 no. Jesus Christ paid the price of his church. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, we see this idea repeated. And it comes to us in verses uh, verses. 18 uh, through 23, it says, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe these are in in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority 
and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, under Jesus Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Did God make you the head of the church? No. Did he make me the head of the church? No. He made Jesus Christ the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We can flip over to Colossians chapter one very quickly in verse 15 or verses 18 through 20. We see it testified to again, Jesus Christ. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the the beginning the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything indeed none of us dare say this is my church this is my way i want things my way or you need to hit the highway listen we must be under the authority and leadership of jesus christ and the church rightly belongs to jesus christ as lord and so the command line flows from god himself through this Apostle Paul, to us in the form of Holy Scripture. Nowhere in the New Testament are the leaders referred to as the head. Only Jesus Christ is given that position of power and preeminence. Do we see the church set up as a democracy in the New Testament? Absolutely not. The church is under the kingship, the leadership, the authority, the sufficient leadership of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Now, the key question for this and every other church when we deal with contentious issues should not be, what is the mind of the members on this issue? That should not be our key question. How do you feel about it? What do you think about it? That's not the issue. The key question to consider when this church or any church faces conflict is to be the issue, what does Jesus Christ Think about it. And we ought to devote ourselves to prayer and to study so that we might answer the question, not what do I think about this issue and how do I think it's best addressed, but here's what the Word of God says should be done in His in the church body. Indeed, the living head of the living organism, the church is Jesus Christ our Lord. And there are many within our culture that argue that the church should be viewed and run as an organization, but indeed rightly understood the church is a living organism existing in this world for the glory of God. Webster in his definitions, uh, book of definitions says an organization is an administrative and functional structure, an administrative and functional structure. And that is not a bad thing for a church to have but that is not what a church is it is not an administration and functional order rather we are an organism and webster defines an organism in this way an individual constituted to carry on the activities of life by means of organs separate in function but mutually dependent An organism is an individual constituted to carry on the activities of life by means of organs separate in function, but mutually dependent. Do we see that as a description of the Christian church anywhere in the New Testament? Absolutely. He gave some to be hands, some to be feet, some to be tongues. Listen, we see that throughout the New Testament. 
The church is a living organism where every member is to be submissive and responsive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and in mutual dependence and interaction with others so that the will of the head may be carried out in a harmonious manner. Now, what is the will of the head? The will of the head is to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth and to fulfill the great commission of preaching the good news of the deliverance through Jesus Christ, the head of the church, to every man, woman, boy, and child on the face of the earth. That's our goal. The main function of church government is to allow Jesus Christ to exercise His headship over His church as gospel ministry is performed and the Great Commission is completed. In case you didn't get that, let me say that again. The purpose of church government is what? To allow Jesus Christ to exercise headship over His body, to, over the congregation of the local church, so that gospel ministry goes forward and the Great Commission is completed. Having this understanding and view of the church would solve a lot of issues that we argue about, wouldn't it? Well, I like that color of carpet. Well, I think the choir robes ought to be this color. Well, I don't like that kind of music. I like this kind of music. Well, I don't like how he does this or how he says that. I want the program, this program, and not that program to be developed. I want all of our attention and focus on this one area. Listen, the one area that we are focusing on as a church is for the gospel to go forward in this community and to the ends of the earth so that God's glory might fill the earth and every man, woman, boy, and child might know Him in spirit and truth and know Him as their Lord and Savior. That's the desire of our souls. That's radically different from self-centered selfishness. Indeed, when a church allows selfish and self-centered approaches and attitudes to infiltrate the congregation, we begin to manage and manipulate majority votes instead of calling ourselves to live daily in submission to Jesus Christ by obeying His Word and walking in the power of His Spirit. When a church allows selfish and self-centered approaches and attitudes to influence the decisions of the congregations uh, of the congregation, we begin to manage and manipulate majority votes instead of calling ourselves to live daily in submission to Jesus Christ by obeying his word and walking in the power of his spirit. Let me be utterly clear. This is why the world looks into the church and says they're no different from anybody else. They're just a bunch of politics going on over there. Because we had the wrong focus. And usually the focus is ourselves and not our God. And the gospel is not the primary focus Our good is the primary focus. Christ is the head of the church and the main function of church government is to allow Jesus Christ to exercise His lordship and His leadership over His church through reverent submission as we seek to do gospel ministry that fulfills the Great Commission. Is that clear enough? Yes? No? Yes. Okay, good. Point number two. 
Christ exercises his headship through spiritually mature overseers. And we come face to face with that there in verse one of chapter three. Christ exercises his headship through spiritually mature overseers. And it says there in in verse one, the office, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. Those are two critical words uh, that we find. First of all, the fact that there is an office. An office, a position, a role of responsibility given to some and not to others to oversee the, the going forward of the Great Commission, uh, of the gospel through the fulfilling the Great Commission. Indeed, we see here that there are two offices in chapter 3 that are revealed. And what are those two offices in chapter 3 of First Timothy that are revealed? Overseers and Deacons, thank you. Somebody spoke up. Overseers and deacons. Indeed, uh, as we interact with the term overseer, we need to understand God's divine design for these offices and what they and, and what the titles entail for the people to be doing. Uh, the term first used there uh, for the office is overseer in, ver- in verse one, and that term uh, overseer comes from the Greek term episkopos from which we get our denomination Episcopalians. And they say that they have bishops who are exercising authority, oversight over many congregations. But understand, that is not the implication in this or any other place in the New Testament. This word episkopos carries the concept of ruling over, watching over, and supervising on the local congregational level. Paul is saying in the local church there are to be overseers. Who are caring for those who have been entrusted by God for their spiritual care. Indeed, this would mean that the person filling this office would exercise spiritual oversight and rule of those entrusted to him for, to them for their spiritual care. When we study the New Testament, we find that there are several other words that are used in correlation with that term episkopos uh, or overseers in the New Testament. And they seem to be used interchangeably. First of all, the most common term used in the New Testament to provide, to uh, address the issue of overseer would be the Greek term presbyteros, from which we get our denomination Presbyterian or elders. The elders, 67 times in the New Testament, the New Testament use, uses elders. In fact, until 1963, Southern Baptist Faith and Message uh, continually continued to refer to the position of pastor as pastor elder. It was up until that point that we saw that within our own denomination. And so we need to understand that this term uh, indicates one who is spiritually mature and exercises spiritual discernment within the life of the local congregation. We can see this clearly illustrated a couple of uh, books over in Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1 verse 5 it says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, to ti- Paul speaking to Titus, that you would set in order that which remains and appoint Elders in every city as I directed you, that you would appoint presbyteros, the the elders in every city as I uh, directed you. Namely, if you if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion for the overseer. Guess what? Episcopos, the word that comes from episcopos, overseer. So here we have the elders 
equated with the overseers in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And we need to understand that. We need to grasp that. That those two terms combined together help us to understand that this office has the responsibility of spiritual oversight, of spiritual maturity and spiritual discernment in directing and leading the local congregation. But third, we need another word uh, to come to bear upon this passage as well. We have uh, indeed seen that Episcopos is a spiritual oversight. We've seen that uh, Presbyteros is spiritual elder or discerner, uh, the one who is filled with discernment but thirdly we need the word uh poimeno and we see this there in first peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 4 and there it says uh peter writes and he says to the church i exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of christ our partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There in verse 2, the first word, shepherd is the word poimena. One who would feed the flock. One who would care for the flock. One who would tend the flock. Indeed, one who poured himself out in making sure that the flock was guarded. And we see, in other words, that these are the under-shepherds of the one who is the chief shepherd. And they are to guide and to guard God's flock within this world. All of these terms combined together rightly inform us to understand the position and responsibility of those that fill the office. But the point of these terms define for us God's divine design for gospel growth through human caretakers of His beautiful bride, the church. Now, the Bible also prescribes within it certain characteristics or qualifications for those fulfilling the high calling of overseer. We're going to touch on just a few today, but then we're going to also come back next week and study in depth the qualifications. But we need to understand God has chosen to work through men to further his gospel ministry. Through you and I to further the gospel ministry. First of all, we see uh, their... their, um, the characteristics uh, of the elder uh, defined there in verse 1 as what? A man. If any man. Now, elders must be male and not female. And that is clearly taught from this uh, passage. Leadership in the church, according to chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, is to preserve God's order in creation. Because it was not a cultural mandate. It was a creation mandate that indeed the men of God are to rise up and to be leaders in the home, in the church, and in the community. Indeed, we saw that 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 was violated in the fall last week, but it is not to be violated within the church. And every instance of leadership in the local church in the New Testament is male and not female. And so we need to understand, as we talked about last week, first of all, there is no difference in the intrinsic value or essence of a male and female, no difference whatsoever. But there is a difference in the roles and responsibilities between males and females in the home and in the church. 
If you weren't here for last week, please go get the podcast. You'll be able to catch up or or just turn on the TV this afternoon at 2.30 to Channel 21, and you'll be able to watch it all over again. We'll have a glorious time. I'll probably get more letters now. What we see in the local church is that there are to be complementary relationships to further the gospel in the church of God. Complementary relationships, but men are primarily given the function of leadership. Number two, elders must be spiritually mature. Elders must be spiritually mature. This implies, uh, this is implied in the office's various titles of elder, overseer, shepherd, and leader. The list in chapter three, verses one through seven, Titus chapter one, verses five through nine, and first Peter chapter five, verses one through four display an emphasis on integrity and character as well as spiritual and emotional maturity. Above reproach is the standard by which every man who steps into the place of leadership is to be held. And let me make it very, very clear. When the world is watching, we need men who step forward and lead and do not act like the scum of the earth, but rather lead as sons of God who are godly men with pure hands and a clean heart. Guys, that is what we are called to. Indeed, a devoted disciple's life will be lived out in every way, at every place, and every time in our lives. Thirdly, elders, we also need to remember from Scripture that the office of elders is a reference always in the plural sense within the New Testament. What does the English, what does the English class tell you that plural means, young people? Plural means what? More than one. Great answer. We've even got some English teachers. More than one. There's a plurality. There's a group. In fact, if you were to take time, and I'm just going to quote for you some scriptures. Acts chapter 11, verse 30. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Acts chapter 15, verses 2. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 22, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, and verse 28, Acts chapter 21, verse 18, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and verse 19, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. Always this office of elders and bishops, overseers, is a plural reference in the New Testament. It's very important that we see that and understand that. Indeed, there is a uh, is great wisdom in the counsel of many, according to Proverbs chapter eleven, verse four. Indeed, there is a great wisdom in sharing of the responsibility and authority in the church, so that no one person dominates the church without accountability. The elders are to be subject to Christ, ultimately through a consistent devotion of prayer and study to of God's word. But in plurality, there is great wisdom because now there is accountability. As the church is being led by godly men who love God and love the people greatly. No dictators and dominators. People who desire to be shepherds, under shepherds, exercising the love, the same love, care and compassion that Jesus Christ had for his sheep. And so 
fourthly, we need to see today, or fourthly, we need to see that elders are gifted and called by God and they are affirmed or recognized by the local church. The church is not a democracy. This may sound anti-American, but remember, not everything that American is biblical. The church is the body of Christ. And as such, Jesus Christ gives a variety of spiritual gifts through the work of the Holy Spirit to edify and equip his church for the gospel ministry. We are not to take a vote and follow the majority opinion in how to decide things, decide all the things of church life. We are to search out the scriptures. We are to pray diligently and submit ourselves ultimately to Jesus Christ in these decisions that we make as a church so that we might glorify him and show the world of his goodness and grace. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says the Holy Spirit of God makes a man an overseer, but the church calls and confirms that man sets him apart to the office and to the task of overseeing the church. Indeed, all those that desire the office and have been called and gifted by God to fulfill the office, uh, to fill the office will meet the qualifications that are immediately enumerated in verses one through seven. In other words, if you say you are called, you will meet the qualifications given in verses one through seven. If you do not meet the qualifications, listen, you are not called to the office of overseer. But I want to point out to you. What does it say at the end of verse one? It is a fine work he desires to do. If a man desires, aspires to the office, if he desires this place, he should be a man who walks with God, loves his family, disciples people regularly. And listen, the church ought to affirm and recognize what the man is already doing. He shouldn't have to get the office in order for him to be doing it, right? Wouldn't that radically change our lives? Let's look around and see who's running towards Jesus as hard as they can. And let's... let's Bring him in, bring him along, raise him up to help in oversight of the local church. We are to prayerfully devote ourselves to seeking those that God would call and give to minister and exercise oversight among us. They are to be men that are marked by clean hands and a pure heart. They are to have a strong witness in both the community and in the congregation. Indeed, this is one one place where I will encourage us as a church to begin praying, studying, and looking at Scripture and confronting the issue, should we have lay elders within the church? My answer would be absolutely yes. Very beneficial and very helpful. I told you that four years ago almost when I met over in the fellowship hall and was asked questions for three and a half hours. And I pointed to this scripture. I said, this this is why. We should have a plurality of elders, not just paid staff elders who are professional Christians. No. No. We should have a plurality of elders, even lay elders, who exercise these qualities among us so that we might have wisdom and discernment in the direction of the gospel ministry and fulfilling the Great Commission for Adamsville Baptist Church. Indeed, as we uh, called each one of the staff after myself, we heard and had a weekend of meeting and greeting and spent time with them. And then we spent a week praying over that decision, praying that God would show us what to do as a church before we set these men apart to fill the roles of pastors. That's why I don't just call myself Pastor Todd. I call Pastor Ted, Pastor Keith, and Pastor Doug. All of us are pastors within the church. 
But I would greatly encourage us to consider men within the church who are gifted and called in this way, setting them apart to do the work of the church as well. The church government is grounded in Jesus Christ's headship. He exercises the headship through spiritually mature elders. And finally this morning, I want us to see that the elders are to lead by shepherding God's flock. How are we to interact with the church? Well, we are to lead as we shepherd God's flock. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Elders, overseers, shepherds are really to be under shepherds of the chief shepherd. They are to love and care for the church, even as Jesus Christ loves and cares for the church. See, this involves us doing what for the shepherd, what uh, for the sheep, what our great high shepherd does for the sheep. He knows them. He leads them. He feeds them. He guards them against the wolves as he guides them into the lush pastures of God's word. He seeks the laws. He cares for the lame. He searches out the strays. He corrects the rebellious as he trains and equips them so that they can serve the Lord as God has gifted them. In a congregation this size, there's absolutely no way that I myself can fulfill this command by myself. I can't be everywhere. Just in case you notice, I'm not God. I'm not omnipresent. Can't be. God is working in us. God is working through us. But it's not a one-man show. There is wisdom in calling godly men alongside to assist in the pastoral ministry, oversight, and spiritual training of this church, both in the paid capacity and in the lay capacity, where we would join and love God and love this church and see each and every one of us edified and equipped for what? For the furtherance of the gospel ministry in this world. Listen, we need to keep a balance. We need to be able to share these responsibilities. And bringing on more elders, lay elders, as well as, uh, as well as paid staff at different points at another place in time would further free up some of our time so that we might devote ourselves to praying, to preaching, to teaching, and the ministry of the word in the life of the congregation and in the life of the community. Let us consider now the structure of the New Testament church. Let us see the wisdom and look at, look at the, uh, opportunity that it brings us brings us when we bring ourselves in line with the Scripture. See, then it becomes not so much about me and not so much about you, 
not so much about him and her and them. It becomes about focusing on Jesus Christ. Seeing him and showing him and sharing him to the world. The government of the local church is to be under the headship and authority of Jesus Christ under his leadership. Why? So that then the gospel ministry might go forward and the great commission might be fulfilled. So rather than beating up and badgering one another with our own self selfish and self-centered desires, maybe we ought to be about structuring ourselves under the authority of God's word. The answer to the question, who is in charge of the church? Jesus Christ is in charge of his church. And you know what? It's just fine. He is still reigning and he is still ruling. He has a name which is above every other name. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And he is just fine. But if we desire to bring ourselves under his lordship, we'll actually do what the word of God teaches even when it means changing and amending things that we have done for a long time in certain ways. The Word of God is to be sufficient and superior to our thoughts and our desires in this world. Father, as we close today.